to RadioFreedomSlips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it, then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We've got to stop them. They're going to kill us all. See how the trouble you've started? Be they a government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you got We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others will take, but as for me, give me liberty! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Okay, good morning. Uh, wherever you are in the world, welcome to Free Association. This is a, a one-hour show that happens at 4 o'clock every Saturday afternoon for me. And it's 11 a.m., on the East Coast in the States, for most of the people who are listening, are a lot of people in the States and also the people on the listening on the podcast later on, who are all over the world. Uh, I've got people in France, there's people in Germany, there's people in Australia, Canada, all over the world. So I don't normally situate these shows, but for some reason today I want to say... It's the 27th of November, 2021. It's just after 4 p.m. for me. 
and why I want to do that today and not any other week, I don't really know. But but I have been kind of investigating astrology again, and that could be the reason. It's kind of it's filtered into my consciousness that the time and the date and the location are important for for astrology for drawing up charts. So it could be that that all of all the videos I've been watching. I've started to have a an influence on me, and that's and I'm going to be situating the shows from now on. So I'm based in the north of England, in Newcastle upon Tyne. So that's that's the information we need for a chart for the show. I haven't done one, but I'll have a look afterwards and see what what was happening around about, and I've changed what I was going to do. So. Two, two hours ago, I was going to play an interview with Neil Young from 1992 uh, about the Harvest Moon album. And I've changed my mind. And I'm now actually going to play a movie called The Wisdom of Trauma, or at least the first 40 minutes, 30 or 40 minutes, 35 minutes maybe, of this movie. Uh, it's on BitChute. The movie's called The Wisdom of Trauma. It's an hour and a half. Uh, so if I play 30 minutes or 35 minutes of it, and then I'll, I'll post a link in the chat room uh, so that people can, can finish it off later on if they want to. Yeah, so my week, I'll start with, start with a little bit of me. Um, again, I don't normally do too much personal stuff on here. I do a little bit, but not too much. But I want to do a little bit of personal stuff today as well. So the format's changing again. Now that we're moving into the winter, it's, it's been five degrees and snowing yesterday and today. We've had a storm coming in from the, from the west, I think, or from the northwest. So I'm back to winter mode, which my winter mode is much more kind of psychological and internal. And the, the summer mode is just a bit of fun, but I'm being a bit more serious again. Uh, the, there is still some fun there to be had, though. I'm, I'm being fairly loose about the seriousness. So it tends to be serious with fun as well, or fun with seriousness. Um, some combination of the two, because obviously the two are there in life, so... Might as well just acknowledge that and, and live life the way it is. So, anyway, getting back to the the main theme of the show. This is a movie called The Wisdom of Trauma. I'm just going to share my screen. And then away we go. As I said... So it'll be about 30 minutes, maybe 35 minutes. And enjoy. Our earliest experience is being in the room form the template of who we believe we are, about how we see other people and our place in the world. 
When I see human faces, I see beauty, I see tremendous suffering, and enormous potential for transcendence. A Greek playwright wrote that the gods created us human beings so that we have to suffer into truth. Our job as human beings is to learn from our suffering. We don't have to keep perpetuating pain for ourselves and inflicting suffering on others. In working with so many people, I've learned that working through trauma can teach us so much wisdom and can reveal the beauty of our existence. We don't have to cut because of trauma we had lost sight of. My name is Gabor Mate. I'm a medical doctor, and these days I travel the world speaking and teaching about child development, health, illness, stress, and Because in 30 years or more of medical practice and of addiction medicine, what I found was that the common template for virtually all afflictions, mental illness, physical disease, is in fact trauma. And there's a wisdom in trauma when we realize that our traumatic responses and imprints are not ourselves and that we can work them through and thus become ourselves. Virtually every week there's a study that more and more people are needing or seeking help for mental health issues. More and more youth are diagnosed with anxiety. Many more kids are diagnosed with the whole plethora of childhood conditions such as ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactive disorder. Depression is rising. Youth suicide is rising. Addictions are rising. Genuinely, it's an epidemic. Twenty percent of youth or more are now diagnosable with anxiety according to all the recent studies. That, that's one-fifth. And those are all the people who are sufficiently anxious to be diagnosed. Well, we're talking about an epidemic. When you grow up in a circumstance like I grew up, you're waiting for somebody to scream at you. You're waiting for something to be thrown. You don't know if you're going to eat. You don't know if you're going to be evicted. So you're constantly anxious and stressed. I used to think this was a rarity. But when I talk to people, a huge number of people have these traumatic experiences as a child that carry, they carry with them. It's like a monkey on your back. Trauma is an overwhelming threat that you don't know how to deal with. So trauma is not the bad things that happen to you, but what happens inside you as a result of what happens to you. My 
father was uh, shot and killed on December 25th, 1999. They found his body in someone's front yard. So essentially, I didn't have anybody to raise me, so I was raised in the juvenile court system. I've lived on the streets since I was 10 years old by myself. The law didn't scare me, and, and I mean, they could have locked me up. Well, what's the difference? Nobody out here is going to miss me. My mother, alcoholic, bad alcoholic. Like my father, sex addiction. His sex addiction ruined our whole family. You know, cheating, caused divorce. I started heroin at 26. That's what really destroyed me. It just takes the pain away. I tried building my, my dream so many times. I don't really have a dream no more. So trauma fundamentally means a disconnection from self. Why do we get disconnected? Because it's too painful to be ourselves. That then becomes a lifelong dynamic. I no longer know how to deal with emotions. Uh, it means that in relationships, when I feel a bit hurt, I immediately withdraw, so I don't have to feel those emotions that I don't know what to do with. So there's a disconnect. It also means that when I have gut feelings, I don't follow them. So I create situations of risk for myself. The trauma also affects how our brains develop. Certain key brain circuits that have to do with how we react and respond and regulate ourselves, how we handle stress, how we interact with other people, how much empathy and insight that we have, how much compassion we have. These functions of the midfrontal cortex are limited and constricted by trauma because we now know that the brain develops an in interaction with the environment. So the brains of traumatized children don't look like the brains of non-traumatized children. You can take it. I've had enough of your crap. You're gonna start acting like a young man instead of a toddler. As a matter of fact, her ass is on punishment right now, and she ain't even gonna go to fuck back outside. What the fuck are you doing, Dad? I swear to God. No, no, There's please. no other way for you to learn that. Please stop. During your first 18 years of life, if a parent or other adult in the household often or very often would swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, step inside the circle. If a parent or other adult in the household often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or threw something at you, step inside the circle. If a parent or other adult in the household often or very often ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured, step inside the circle. If you often felt that no one in your family loved you, step inside the circle. Step inside the circle. I think society got prison wrong and they're seeing what's wrong with people instead of what happened to people. Our mission at Compassion Prison Project is to transform communities and prisons with compassionate action. 
An adverse childhood experience is a terrible event that continues to happen to a child. And there's no way to know when it's going to happen again, which puts the kid into a hypervigilant state. I have eight of those ACEs, and when I found out I have eight adverse childhood experiences, and that my behavior was a direct result of the trauma that I experienced in childhood, it changed my life. The men and women in prison, 64% of them have six or more of those. Hi, Gabor. Monique. Hi, Gabor. I feel like I'm in a throne. I want to talk to you guys about why you think you got addicted, about what may happen to you as a child, the way you saw yourself as being deficient somehow. I was kidnapped at 16 and sold off. So that's a trauma that's just something that's in my life that you can't turn around, right? And kidnapped by who? There's a taxi driver who took me and a girlfriend when we were 16 okay. and held us for six months in a motel and sold off my virginity. And the police was looking for you all that time and... Well, my mom just thought that I had run away from home, so she didn't look for me. She didn't look for you? No. I really need your permission to continue or not to continue. It's okay, give you permission. The taxi driver knew exactly who to kidnap. The predator can always tell who is without protection. Anybody hate you as a child? Yes, my father. He would spank us and take a belt to us. Do you remember how that felt to you? Like, I just remember the pain of it. Instead of thinking, oh, why? Why did I deserve this? I just remember it, the pain and that. And how long did that go on for? Well, until I was approximately 16 and started fighting back. So 10, 11 years. Yeah. Okay. Let's say you're the mother of the five-year-old, and this five-year-old is being hit with a belt. And she's in pain. She doesn't understand, you know? And she's just, it just hurts. And it hurts emotionally. Because this man who's supposed to love me is beating me. So when you're being hit like that, there's only two possibilities. My father's a bad person or he hates me, or I'm, a, or I'm a bad person. So the, the only protection is to believe that, oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not lovable. Let's say you're the mother of the five-year-old. Who would you want that five-year-old to talk to? Myself. Okay, who did you talk to? Nobody. That's the trauma. In other words, by the time you were five years old, you were completely alone. What I'm suggesting really, Alicia, is that your mother was traumatized too. Do you know anything about her childhood? She was abused as a child as well from an alcoholic father. You see, she learned in her childhood not to pay attention to her feelings. That's the only way she could survive. So the reason she didn't know is not because she didn't love you, but because she herself was shut down inside. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's just it's multi-generational. Mm -hmm.
Okay. Yeah. Can't pick out who's at fault here. It didn't begin with anybody. It, it goes on and on and on from one generation to the next. We were talking about the effects of slavery on our behavior. And I'm be honest with you, I ain't agree with it when I first heard it. But then when he talked about the discipline, I had a flashback of how I used to get whipped with a bull whip, naked. I didn't put the two or two together, but I realized, you know, that's how slaves were whipped because it was generational trauma passed on from one mother to another mother to another mother, and it passed on to me. I still got marks on my legs and stuff behind that. And I just remembered there was no one I could run to, no one I could help me. And she just was telling me how much she loved me as she cried and she beat me with a bullwhip. Best-selling author of four books published in 12 languages sold on five continents. Please welcome Dr. Gabor Mate. I actually wrote my speech out tonight, which I don't usually do, but maybe out of nervousness in front of this group of strong women, you know, we all... The, 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 truth, is, the truth is that guys are afraid of women. I don't, I don't know if you realize that, but that's, uh, a lot of the stuff that we do is totally out of fear. Well, um, when you felt bad as a kid, who did you speak to? When the pain is there and there's no one to share it with, then the child has very limited resources to deal with that. And what they do is they disconnect from themselves. When you disconnect from yourself, you no longer have yourself. You've lost yourself. When we talk about trauma, we usually think of something terrible happening to a person. But that's not the only trauma there is. And so the other kind of trauma may not have to do with terrible things happening to you. Most people look at my childhood and say, damn, you had an awesome you know, childhood. And because uh, I had everything, you know, I, we come from upper, upper middle class, you know, and uh, in Idaho. And I got everything given to me, but that was their way of parenting. They'd give me everything so I'd shut up and wouldn't bug them. Because they're always too busy, they're always working. So children don't get traumatized because they get hurt. Children get traumatized because they're alone with the hurt. I'm a lifer inmate. I'm here on a first degree murder. I committed my crime when I was 20 years old. And I asked myself, what events in my life brought me to the point where I could think that it's okay to take a human life. And it had, it had to do with a lot of adverse childhood experiences. My main one as to why I started going downhill was um, being abandoned by my father. I looked up to him. I wanted to be just like my dad. He was my hero. But when I turned eight or nine years old, he got deported to Mexico. And that devastated me. As a kid, my mom used to tell me, uh, mijo, Pray to God that he'll come back. But he never came. A baby that you don't pick up will actually die. Even if you feed them and you change them and look after them. Because they get overwhelmed by their feelings. And they get overstressed. And so the baby needs the mother's and the father's brain to regulate her own brain, to regulate their emotions. It's not just that you're overwhelmed. 
it's also there's nobody there to hold you. There's a huge school of thought in North America that teaches mothers to help their babies sleep by ignoring their crying. Never mind the mother's milk. The infant just wants to attach because the only way the infant can attach is physically. When he's not being held, he's not being attached to. When that's done night after night after night, that's traumatic. And we're still telling mothers to do that. If you actually look at genuine human needs, if you connect the gut and the heart and the soul, then there's nothing more normal than a child sleeping in the arms of a parent. So I've often thought about the sources of my own issues. An infant, two months of age in Hungary, when the Germans, the Nazis, marched into a country and they began to exterminate the Jewish population. So that was my first year of life with a terrorized mother, grandparents killed in Auschwitz, a father away in forced labor, anti-Semitism, the ever nearing shadow of annihilation, and ultimately a separation from my mother. I was a little short of one year old when my mother had to hand me to a stranger in the ghetto of Budapest and send me away to some relatives in hiding. So I didn't, we didn't see each other for six weeks. And she didn't know if she would live or not. In her diary, she said that this is the hardest six weeks of her life. That was the experience of the first nearly year and a half of my life. And sometimes I thought, well, gee, I must have received a lot of love at the same time. Otherwise, it would be a lot more crazy than I actually am. For trauma to happen, you don't need Second World War, and you don't need racism, and you don't need genocide, and you don't need uh, uh, the privations of war. You just need parents who are so alienated from their own gut feelings that they will let their infants cry without picking them up. And that child is desperate for a relationship. That's all it takes. Well, hi. Alice, hello. Welcome. Hi. Welcome, Gabor. Wow. What a view. Thank you. For me, being a drug addict, the deep down need uh, to escape, I think is almost into a more realistic place than the insanity that we see, the chaos we see around us. You know, I, I just wanted that place all the time. I can really talk for the 37 years I've been recovered and have had slips in the program, quote, AA. And what's the fear? Well, the fear is I'll be abandoned. You know, it's back with the homo sapiens. I'll be thrown out of the cave. What is your fear of being abandoned? Well, naturally that I'll die unless I do all of this stuff for other people. When you do all this stuff for other people, mm -hmm. what are you doing to yourself? I'm abandoning me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're actually enacting mm -hmm. your worst fear. Mm -hmm. I was the youngest of five, very ambitious family, yeah. very successful, yeah. except everyone's alcoholic. I go in the bar, they're drinking. There's no room for me. It's like, oh, shut up, Allison, shut up. You're wrong, you're wrong. So my job was to be wrong in the family. 
I'll never forget my mother, you know, saying to me, I just don't understand you. And I was six years old and I thought, my God, if you don't understand me, I'm lost. Allow me to give you another perception of you. You're the one that more than others absorbs all the pain and stress right. in the family. And then you manifest it. Mm -hmm. And they can't stand seeing it. Mm -hmm. So in exiling you, they're exiling their own pain and stress. Right. Right. Okay. As a child, we have two fundamental needs. One need that's with us is infancy, and it's absolute, and it's not negotiable, is attachment. And so the other need, then, is authenticity. Authenticity, therefore, is the connection to ourselves. Because without authenticity, without a connection to our gut feelings, just how long do you survive out there in nature? So authenticity is not some new age, pseudo-spiritual concept. It's actually a survival necessity. What happens if in order to survive or to adjust your environment, you have to suppress your gut feelings? You have to suppress your authenticity. So normal society does not allow anger, and, 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 and the child who's angry must be separated. In other words, we have to threaten his attachment relationships on which his life depends so that he can suppress his emotions. Well, that child, if he learns the lesson well, will disconnect from their anger. And then he's a sitting duck for depression, mental illness, or for physical illness. Okay, so kid is angry. Well, how about helping him move through the anger to learn how to modulate it? Not to repress it, but to learn to become friends with it. We don't want people who are not angry. We want people who know that anger doesn't have to be destructive. What were you pushing down when you were depressed? Anger. Right. You were pushing down Rage. your anger. Rage. You were pushing down your anger, Yeah. Right? Can you see how why, for a six-year-old, it might be a really brilliant idea to push down the rage? Yeah. Why? For survival. Exactly. You talked about your many failures. Mm-hmm. I just want you to pick one. The fear, if left on my loan, I won't get out of bed. I've, I've, I've done that before. And you regard that as a failure? Falling apart, I regard as a failure. You regard that as a failure? Right. Okay. So your failure is that you got depressed and, as you put it, you fell apart. Is that the failure? Yeah. Just identify the age that you first recall being depressed at. Probably about six or seven. Right. How old are you kids now? My oldest daughter's 33, yeah. my son is 30, and my youngest daughter's 27. Okay, choose one as a thought experiment right now. And I want you to imagine them at age seven. Mm -hmm. Let's say they get depressed. Would you go to them and say, you are a total failure? Of course not. Why not? Notice you're calling yourself a failure. I'm gonna say something radical to you. Okay. The depression was a major success. Not a failure. Okay? No, I know that sounds ridiculous. No, but... no, I'm listening. You're telling me that having that pain showed me deeper inside of myself how I was abandoning myself. Precisely. 
So maybe you want to stop calling it a failure. Mm -hmm. You go through your whole life like that and see how everything that you judge about yourself actually served the purpose at the time. Yeah. Gabo Matty, thanks very much for coming on Under the Skin. The reason I'm so excited to talk to you, the reason that I believe you're having such an important cultural impact is because of your uh, rare compassion and insight into the world of addiction. When it was heroin, I would like have, I would reflect right. after I'd used and just go, right, this isn't for me. This has got to stop. This is not a sustainable yeah. system. You think you'd never need it anymore because you feel complete. Mm. And then comes the remorse of what have I done? <laughs> and then you think, I don't need to do this ever again. <laughs> and then by the time I'm home, I'm running back to the store again to get the next thing that I didn't buy. In the life of every person who's ever been addicted and ever will be addicted, there's always trauma. An addiction is any behavior that a person finds relief in the short term and craves, but suffers negative consequences and cannot give it up. That's what an addiction is. Could be drugs, obviously, alcohol, nicotine. Could also be sex, could be gambling, could be shopping, could be eating, could be pornography, could be the internet, could be gaming, could be work, could be uh, relationships. That's what an addiction is. first issue is not why the addiction, but why the pain. <laughs> In our society, there are two uh, myths around addiction. The pernicious one is the belief that addiction is a choice and that the decisions that arise out of addictions are therefore a matter of individual culpability. And so therefore, addicts for the most part are punished for being addicted. Now, the other belief around addiction, but still misleading, is that it's an inherited disease. It's a biological disorder of the brain. That belief is more humane, much more than the choice belief, because at least if somebody inherits a disease, they're not to be punished for it, but they provide, they're to be provided with treatment as with any disease. However, it's also misleading because it ignores why people really get addicted which has got nothing to do with disease. It's among the normal human responses to trauma. When people are suffering, they want to escape their suffering. That's normal. Jutah Pornshelloshi. I'm 43 years old. I come from a, a, Thai, a family of Thai restaurant owners. I moved away when I was 14. I was never good enough. I mean, I think if I had a parents who didn't really care and was lenient, I don't think I would have really got right into it and really got addicted. I might have just, you know, tried it once or twice. But I think the pressure was on from the upbringing and having to feel like I had to achieve and be the best of what I did, an A student. And so when I moved away, I really wanted to prove not just, just myself, but to them that I, I was more than what they saw. 
You know, I, I did apply to Stanford University. That was my number one choice. Um, I was disappointed I didn't get in. And San Francisco State University was my second choice. And um, while there, I did do the same things that I was doing when I was in high school, playing for the NCAA, singing choir. With doing so many things, pledging sororities and doing being different club members, I'm saying I was just trying to find my way in, in, in the world. And then I started to work at the nightclubs here. And so I think that's when I really evolved because I wanted to do everything. I wanted to go to school, wanted to work, but I needed to do homework as well. So the pressure was on then. So then it, it got into heavier drugs, so I needed the meth to stay up. I think our society just doesn't understand addiction. Without the addiction, they felt incomplete. They felt this huge emptiness inside. And so their addiction was to complete themselves and, and, and to somehow temporarily cover up the emptiness. Why the finger pointing? Why the judgments on a particular group of people who are addicted who happen to use substances? My first job that I ever had as a physician in Vancouver after I did my internship was actually in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Because North America is most concentrated and most dramatic area of drug use where there's more people injecting and in ingesting and inhaling all kinds of substances than anywhere else on, on the planet. And I go to this old broken down hotel with cracking paint on the walls and kind of strange people walking in and out and I felt totally at home right away. And after two years, I shifted my full-time work to the downtown itself. Well, so I worked there for 12 years. And they all suffered tremendous torment as children, uh, which also meant that their addictions were extreme. They were quite willing to sacrifice love, life, relationship, health, just for the next hit. They were that desperate to escape from reality because reality had been so cruel to them. We were dealing with people with severe infections. They would inject drugs that would give them abscesses not only in their skin or their muscles, but also in their brains, in their spinal cord, in their joints. So they have to be hospitalized, which is the only facility where you can deliver IV antibiotics several times a day. But they were users, so they'd be always absconding from the hospital and even using the IV lines to inject through. So inevitably, they'd be kicked out of hospital, which means that their life-threatening infections would be untreated. This is how I met Joey Carter. I think I pushed him across an intersection once in his wheelchair. Maybe that's the first time he actually met. And he helped me out and he said, what are you doing? Hey, enough's enough. I'm gonna admit you to CTCT, are you gonna go there? Hmm. And I was like, well, what about my addiction? And he said, well, what are you using? And I said, well, I've been using morphine and mesalons. I said, how many will you give me a day? He said, as many as you have in your pocket. by meeting people where they're at and treating them like human beings and not trying to change them, actually opens up the possibility of transformation for them. And Julie's a, a prime example. They had come in like every four hours to give me more morphine yeah. and, and, and I wasn't eating it. I was saving it, right? And I, and I woke up and there was like morphine all over the bed and I thought I was in heaven. Ha, 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 ha.
I do recall your poetry, and, and you know, you were very, uh, a very avid writer. Yeah. And you shared some of that with me. Um, is there one that you, you know that you can recite now? Yeah. It goes, <clears throat> I misbehave when I crave to push the venom in my veins. I lose all control of my inner soul and my demons hold the reins. Oh. I deceive whoever believes I twist their open trust. With nefarious precision and tunnel vision, I pursue the venom with lust. With the desire so strong, I forget all bonds hurting the ones I adore. And even though they love me, they move on from me to let me fight my war. Uncontrollable, I'm inconsolable. Slowly, I'm dying inside. A glutton of such, I've used too much. Now there's no life in my eyes. Wow. Well, okay, I think that's the place to stop. That's definitely the place to stop. That was almost exactly 35 minutes, so <laughs> I must have, must have known that when I put the video on. I expect something told me 35 minutes anyway. Uh, that's that was Gabor Mate, and the video is called The Wisdom of Trauma. And uh, there's another hour, uh, which you can watch at your leisure. I've shared it in the chat room a few times. Anybody wants to watch it, it's, it the link's in the chat room. Uh, I'm going to talk for the last 15 minutes or so. Um, don't know what I want to talk about yet. I'm just going to wait until something shows up. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the conversation I had last Sunday is something I've already kind of spoken about on the round table, but I'll do it again here just because it's it's a project for next year that I'm kind of thinking about. And uh, it's a development for me, so it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be it's going to be a big challenge for me because it takes me out of my comfort zone. Uh, I mean, it's a, I'm talking about a, running a group, but I'm talking about a, running a group on a topic I know nothing about. So it's a, it's going to be a challenge from that point of view, but it's what, it's what I feel like is necessary now. So I registered a domain name uh, last week which is uh, magnacartacafe.com and the Magna Carta was a, a charter in the 12th century, 13th century, 1215 it was, in the UK, in, in England, between King John and the, uh, the aristocracy, the, the land-owning barons. Uh, it was an agreement to... Um, I don't know what I, I don't know exactly what it was for. It was something to do with taxes and and land, and paying for the wars. But uh, don't ask me exactly what it's about because I don't know. And this is why it's a challenge for me to talk about Magna Carta. But I do know one guy who was a lecturer at the local university who might volunteer to do something. And I'm going to look for other people who were involved in law. So I need to find some lawyers in Newcastle, some solicitors in Newcastle, some some philosophers who deal with law, because uh, this is going to be a physical group. It's a physical group in a cafe at the end of January is the plan. So I don't want to sabotage it by talking about it too much, but 
we decided on the end of the month, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this with a, a, a woman I knew from a philosophy group about four years ago, three, four years ago. She's just got back from Spain. So, and she wants to do, she wants to do something. She's very, she's enthusiastic. She's available at the end of the month. I've got money at the end of the month because I get my universal credit on the 25th of the month. So the last Saturday of the month seems like a logical place to put this group. And, and normally I run philosophy groups of sorts. I kind of run discussion groups, but they're based around philosophy or one was based around free association, which is more psychoanalysis. Uh, but the law is what's needed at the moment. We need to be conscious of human rights and uh, civil rights and social rights and medical rights. All of these things are, are being put into question. So that's the place that the, that the philosophy and the discussion groups needs to focus on. So I've called it Magna Carta Cafe. It's going to be, well, I'll set this one up in Newcastle as a, as a model, as a template. And then people can maybe pay me, a, pay me a small fee to use the name and to be listed on the website or whatever. Uh, the, way the, the way the healing system works that I've been part of, when I, when I, that I was trained in, is people pay $25 and get listed on the website. So I think that's a good model. Uh, if anybody wants to set something up based around the Magna Carta, if you're based in 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 the UK, then get in. Reach out to me on Facebook. My Facebook uh, name is Dennis Barker. Uh, my Skype name is Dennis Barker Open Philosopher. Put the words Magna Carta Cafe in the title of your message. And then I'll know what you want to talk about, and I'll reach I'll reach out and and set up a time. Uh, we can do so if you want to do something online. We could do something on Zoom or on Skype. If you want to be part of it, uh, but as I say, I'll set up the model and get get some material together, some just basic basic functional introductory material, and then the the discussion goes where it goes from there. But the idea is that nobody can stop anybody talking about history. So if we want to talk about history for an hour and then the conversation happens to drift into current events, then that's not something that, that I'm going to stop happening. Uh, it's not necessarily something I'm going to encourage, but it's not something I'll stop happening. And if that's the natural place for the conversation to go, then it becomes an interpretation of, of rights and uh, freedom and justice. Freedom and justice are, are the concepts that are based that are the basis of this uh, this cafe discussion. So the philosophical concepts at the base of it. But, but they're not thought of as philosophical concepts. Usually they're thought of as political concepts. Uh, but I want to I wanna keep it high level at least for an hour and then, and then get into the more practical stuff. 
and the more kind of day-to-day know your rights kind of material. So this is how I'm imagining this meeting to go in a, in a cafe. And uh, the cafe that we used to use that I liked is a place called the Tyneside Cinema Cafe. Uh, at the moment, there's not that many people, there's not that many customers in there. And I know they're open. They always used to be open at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning because we used to have groups. Well, we used to have groups in there on Fridays at 10 o'clock. So if they're open on Friday at 10 o'clock, they're going to be open on Saturday at 10 o'clock. I need to double check, but uh, I'm going to suggest to my, my colleague that we meet that we meet in the Tyneside Cinema Cafe, at least initially, uh, once a month on the last Saturday of the month. Um, we'll have that conversation on Sunday at a stand in the park, uh, which is another thing that I quite like at the moment that I probably could talk about a little bit um, because it's a networking, net, networking place. It's just a conversation in the park. But the point about having a conversation in the park is you can talk about whatever you want and it becomes a conversation within a network of people who are activists, who are aware, socially aware, politically aware, aware of the current situation. So without necessarily stating a, an objective, it's just an open, it's like it becomes a, it becomes a container for the conversations. Astandinthepark.org is the website. And uh, what I might do is register the Saturday meeting on there as well one, as a once a month thing at the Tyneside Cinema, see if, see if new people come in. Uh, I'm not sure how many people the Tyneside will cope with. We, we've had we've had 20 people in a group in there, in a philosophy group, but that was too big, it was too many. Uh, and on a Saturday, they won't appreciate people being in a large group without spending money, so we'll have to at least buy a coffee and spend an hour there. There's a bar around the corner as well that I quite like called the, the Earl Grey. Uh, which has an upstairs meet up, upstairs function room. Uh, the youth, it's a, it's on two floors. The downstairs is is the main bar, but upstairs they open up on a Saturday when there's foot when there's a football game on. But they don't really use it the rest of the time. So we could potentially do an hour at the Tyneside Cinema, and then move around the corner to the Earl Grey and use their upstairs function room for another hour and that way we wouldn't be pissing off anybody by not spending money and uh, yeah I think that might work as a kind of way to do things so I'm going to suggest it and see what people think uh, but the Earl Grey might be a place for a stand in the park as well so I'll have to work out where I, where I want to register that but for the time being, it's a monthly group, so it's not, not going to be weekly. It's going to be monthly under the title of Magna Carta Cafe. And it's, uh, the website is magnacartacafe.com. 
And all I did was I, I forwarded it to the existing website, which is shadowplay.live. So I added a, a jobs board on there recently. So if you've got a, a job for the unvaccinated that you want to advertise, you can do that. There's a place to support what I'm doing as well as a membership option if you want if you want to post jobs uh, the the options start from 10 pounds a month so I thought that was a reasonable place to start uh, it goes up to to a, a one-off donation of a thousand for a VIP membership and everything in between but uh, I'm going to need money to do what I do so I've got to generate an income from somewhere and that's as good a place as any to do it and it, it goes via Skype, so it's not being processed by PayPal. It's it's being processed by Skype, that particular site, uh, not Skype, Stripe. Uh, anyway, my, my name, if you're following me, my name on Twitter is Dennis Barker, Dennis with two N's, and Barker with a B. That's probably the best place to follow me. And. Uh, And I've just started uh, uploading the archive of the radio show and the, and the podcast to Odyssey. So there's a channel on Odyssey. If you look up Free Association Radio Show, you'll find the channel. Um, and I've put the, the round tables on there. I've put the Saturday show on there. And there's usually three or maybe four podcasts that I do as well that I've put on there, or I will be putting on there from now on. Uh, because I like Odyssey, I've just figured out how to live stream on Odyssey. And uh, it took me a little bit of time, but but I've worked it out now. Uh, I, my laptop won't cope with live streaming and, and using Skype at the same time, I don't think, so I'm gonna have to work out how to do it using my phone for the for the radio show and the laptop for the live stream. But I'm here I'm here every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. in the UK. Uh, we're, we're Greenwich Mean Time at the moment for the next six months or so, well, the next five months or so. But all being well, I'll see you next week at the same time. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for your support. And stay well. Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Be evasive.
But that doesn't mean that they're telling the truth as opposed to fiction. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, and there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, indicating that there were giants before the Nephilim. And sons of God, plural. They weren't talking about Jesus coming down. No, no, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm Steve Crawford, host of Factor Theory Live. Join me every Sunday night from 10 p.m. till midnight Eastern Standard Time on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Check it out. What the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth Jihad Radio. Federal prosecutors, Department of Homeland Security agents, and curious passersby often ask me, just what is this Truth Jihad thing anyway? Well, everybody knows what truth is, but Jihad is a misunderstood term. Jihad means effort or struggle. The greater Jihad is the struggle to be a better person, while the lesser Jihad is the struggle to defend the community. Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, did say that the best Jihad is a word of truth flung in the face of a tyrant. And that's what we do here at Truth Jihad Radio. Every Friday, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 7 Pacific, right here on Revolution Radio. 